and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Sarah Kachansky. Uh, in today's show, we're going to be discussing open banking. It's now been just over one year since the 14th of September 2019 deadline. And with this anniversary in mind, we want to see where we are now with open banking innovation and the key learnings that have emerged over the past year. Joining me today, I have some fantastic guests, uh, all putting open banking to use. Uh, first up, we have Aaron Tharmaraja, Head of European Banks and Payments at TransferWise. <laughs> TransferWise? Hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. All right. Uh, welcome to the show, Aaron. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm um, good, thanks. Uh, I'm a long-time listener of the show, so it's uh, quite nice to be here. Brilliant. Um, I don't think we need to go into what TransferWise does, but maybe you could give us a quick overview of what you do. Yeah, sure. So TransferWise is headquartered in the UK. We do money transfers um, all over the world. And my my role there is to make sure that the money that we get in and the money that we pay out moves around uh, as quickly, cheaply and easily as possible by working with banks and payment service providers all over Europe. Brilliant. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming along. Uh, next up, we have Jack Wilson, Head of Policy and Regulatory Affairs at TrueLayer. Thank you for joining us, Jack. Um, so maybe you could give us just a, a quick overview of you know what TrueLayer is and maybe what you do there. So TrueLayer is uh, a software layer. We sit in between banks on the one side and fintech clients on the other side. And we aggregate connections to the banks and we give our clients one single API that they can connect into all of the banks through. So we're really driving open banking um, and making it much easier for fintech clients of ours to get to market because they don't have to maintain connectivity teams themselves. We are uh, a connectivity team for hire basically. And we were one of the first companies to get our PSC2 open banking permissions in the UK. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming along. Um, and returning to the show, we have Dan Globerson, Head of Open Banking at NatWest. Uh, Dan, I don't think you need to tell us what NatWest is, um, but perhaps you could uh, refresh us on what you do there. Sure. Yeah, I think NatWest is, uh, we're pretty well known. Although maybe for those who don't know us quite as well, we do operate across a variety of uh, brands and segments, uh, mostly in the UK, but also in the uh, Republic of Ireland, Luxembourg, Gibraltar, and abroad for our markets business. Uh, many people may know some of our other brands like Coots and Royal Bank of Scotland and others. Um, nonetheless, I'm the head of open banking. So uh, my role is uh, bank-wide or group-wide. Uh, we focus on a few different things, one of which is working on uh, policy and standards with the open banking implementation entity and some other banks in the UK. Uh, another one of which is to ensure that we're compliant with regulation, uh, PSD2 open banking regulation, as well as the competition markets authority uh, work in um, or mandates in open banking. And last but not least is building out an API enabled bank to ensure that uh, that we can be there for our customers in a variety of different ways as the uh, world evolves. Brilliant. Well, thank you for coming back. Um, let's start by uh, going back to that deadline I mentioned at the top. So that September deadline from last year, what what was the aim of that? What was what was supposed to have happened uh, by that point? Um, as succinctly as we can, perhaps. <laughs> Who wants to go first on that one? Please, Jack. So in a nutshell, that was the, the date after which banks had to give access to open banking companies, open banking fintechs, um, via either one of two ways. So either via APIs or via a different type of interface. 
obviously APIs are the favored interface because they're so much better for connections. TrueLayer is an API first company and we're focused on that side of things. So yeah, 14th of September was the date that those APIs were supposed to be in place. In reality, as with all things that are so ambitious like PSD2, there were some delays. So on the bank side, some of the banks weren't ready with their APIs or their APIs weren't performing as well as they could perform. And then on the TPP side, that's third-party provider. A lot of third-party provider, they were migrating from all types of connection via screen scraping to APIs. So in the end, there was a bit of an adjustment period that the FCA gave to companies. So March 2020 became the new deadline. Brilliant. So that was what was supposed to have happened. I was going to ask you why it's been pushed back, but you covered it. Uh, you covered it very, very well there. Um, do you think pushing it back had any material impact? It was about six months or so. Did it have any material impact on, you know, on, on what was being done, what was being planned? I mean, Dan, perhaps you know, you work in a, in a large bank. <laughs> Deadlines and things that change like that can be um, perhaps more problematic for you. You've got a lot more people to mobilise. Was there any difference at all, or was it just thank goodness we've got a bit of breathing space? So were you all ready and raring to go anyway? Well, but, I mean, um, building on Jack's points, I mean, as one of the what we call the CMA nine banks in the UK uh, at NatWest, we were required to have uh, APIs and, and and no other less lesser form of interface working against a set of agreed standards for current accounts uh, starting early in the first quarter of 2018. So we had a bit of an advantage in all of the things about building an open banking ecosystem. And we have to keep in mind that PSD2 applies to something on the order of 8,000 institutions across the entirety of Europe, including the UK. That's a lot of institutions with varying technical capability to get up to speed with such a substantial change. And for any size bank, big or small, those changes are complicated by having legacy platforms, oftentimes a lack of uh, technical skill, in uh, modern API implementations, thus the reason some have gone with lesser forms of interfaces, as Jack had pointed out. So it was a rather big ask. Again, for us, we had a fair bit of confidence, as did a few other UK banks who had been operating for longer in this space. I think that that adjustment period, I think, was required. And again, as Jack pointed out, it wasn't just banks not being prepared, of which there were a fair number. Uh, it was also the third parties and uh, their ability as well to come up to speed with API ecosystems or to those enhanced customer interfaces. So the move away from screen scraping was substantial. And even for us, where we had many of these accounts available for the better part of a, a year and a half, really, uh, we did have to do some handholding with a variety of, um, of screen scraping companies, large companies that specialize in screen scraping, just to get them over the line. A fair amount of that. I don't want to call it, I don't want to, I don't want to say they're dragging their feet. That's not fair, but they've got a big agenda as well. And this switch over to new interfaces was a change for them. So um, I think I think it worked just as well for third parties as for banks having a few more months there. Um, Aaron, did you you were nodding along there? Did you want to add something on that? Is it did it make much difference to, to you or, or what you were doing, or did have you seen other people it made a big difference to? Yeah, so I think it's quite important to maybe separate the two main like use cases and types of services that open banking is kind of designed to provide. So one is the kind of the most popular one is the account information. And this is kind of popularized by the kind of money management apps where essentially your the API can give you access to a customer's bank account, transactional information and balance information. 
Um, but then you've got, which is significantly less popular, the payment initiation piece. And I actually think that's probably got the biggest potential for disruption. But if you look at the statistics, less than 1% of the API calls are actually related to payment initiation. But that's actually what we decided to build first. So um, if you're a TransferWise customer, typically before open banking existed, you sent us your money using a credit card, which has costs on TransferWise, or you make a bank transfer. So we give you an account number and sort code. You log into your mobile banking or your online banking. You type in the account number and sort code, which has all sorts of possibilities for errors, and you send us the money. What open banking allows you to do is automate that whole flow, uh, give customers security and comfort that it's uh, a trusted way of doing so, and there's all sorts of authentication behind it, and uh, make that journey um, a lot, lot smoother. Um, so that that has a huge potential to, to cause so much disruption everywhere else, and that's what personally I think we're a bit more excited about. Yeah, I mean, and that's a good point I think to ask the question, sort of like you know, what what's the latest in terms of open banking? So you know, where are we? Um, as you said, you know, there's still probably a little bit of work to do there. I'd be really interested in hearing views on on what the last few months, whether that's spurred adoption of open banking powered services. There was um, some stats came out from uh, the OBIE last week, two weeks ago, um, suggesting that in the UK it hit two uh, open banking users had hit two million, um, and they had suggested that a lot of the apps. Oh, sorry, the services that had seen uptake over, over the last few months were ones helping people manage their money better for various reasons. People are wanting to do that, um, have more time to do it. Um, what, what are your, your takes on it? I mean, have you, the, the three of you, seen increased usage? Um, obviously, Trilay, you can, you can see your customers' usage um, over, over the last few months. And, and if so, what sort of thing have you seen? Um, oh, first of all, I'd agree with Aaron um, that account information took off in a big way um, to begin with, and it kind of became all that people were talking about in open banking. And the heralded payment initiation kind of languished in the background. I think that's very much because there's a difference in um, what you need to do to get set up for payment initiation versus account information. You know, if a customer goes to their money dashboard app and tries to add their bank and it's not on the list because it's not yet ready, it's not the end of the world if it's data and you're just trying to aggregate your accounts. But if you're on the checkout of a uh, like John Lewis or something and you try and pay and you think, oh, I'm going to take a punt at this pay by bank thing and then you're, your bank's not there, you're going to be wary of that payment method, probably not going to touch it again. So that, I think, is one of the reasons the network effect is much more important for payment initiation before people will start to trust it. That said, uh, just to throw in a few stats, it's really taken off in a big way for TrueLayer and our clients, and particularly in COVID. So our payment API calls grew 832% between March and July, and we ended up uh, the Treasury landscape review, the consultation, uh, mentioned that COVID was one of the reasons that payments was increasing because of charitable donations. Um, and TrueLayer actually had a donation service launched during COVID, which which did increase our payment volumes. But it wasn't the only reason, you know. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Numbers. Yeah, no, and um, yeah, <laughs> that's a hell of a percentage. Um, Aaron, sorry, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, like, I think it's, it's kind of important to maybe just go back to the fundamentals of like why open banking is is happening to then link it to like the pandemic. So 
the whole kind of premise of open banking is that consumers own their data relating to their financial transactions and PSD2 specifies this to your payments account. So basically your main bank account, what's going in into your bank account, what's going out of your bank account, that data essentially belongs to the customer rather than the bank itself. And therefore the customer should be free to do within reason what they want with that information, right? So I think the pandemic has just kind of heightened the need for consumers to become much more financially savvy. Um, and, you know, there, there are loads of reports on how financial literacy is a growing problem in the UK. And generally, the market for apps that improve financial literacy and financial awareness target the young people, uh, people in their 20s to 30s. And they were by far the biggest group affected by recent events. So it's, it's definitely a force for good. And I think we shouldn't be afraid of just championing the fact that, you know, open banking and a financial service is actually improving financial inclusion and financial literacy, which is something I think uh, the industry can actually be quite proud of. Absolutely. Um, Dan, how about you over at NatWest? Did you see, I mean, you must have seen all sorts of things over the last few months, but open banking specifically. Um, yeah, we have. I think it's been a bit of a of a mixed story in terms of how the pandemic has, um, in some cases, driven more use and in other cases, driven a bit less use. And uh, by that, I mean, I think alternative lending and subprime lending is seems to be picking up a bit. And those channels tend to use open banking to um, help customers manage their, their monthly incomings and outgoings uh, to ensure that uh, some of the riskier segments of, um, of the lending spectrum are, uh, are well supported. So I think there's some really good use cases there. Um, I think in other cases, we've seen maybe a bit less activity. Um, I think some of the, some of the neo banks or digital only banks, um, that really cater for customers, uh, you know, international travels and have a, have a proposition there. We've seen less activity because travel's been, uh, travel's been effectively quashed for months and it looks like it'll be continue to be quashed for quite some time. So I think, I think it's a bit of a mix. I think a lot of it's natural growth. And we ourselves also uh, sit on the end of the same APIs when building digital propositions. So we're seeing increased activity just driven by ourselves as well, which is, which is pretty cool. And on the payment side, and I think it, it deserves reiterating, I think Aaron brought up some really good points. It's going to take some time for payments to take off in this space. Uh, part of the PSD2 legislation was clearly um, targeting um, you know, a variety of existing schemes for, you know, card and other types of schemes. And, um, those schemes had, had, were established organically over decades. And in order to, in order to work, uh, their way in there, open banking payments going to take some time. It's going to take continued maturity of the interfaces across, you know, hundreds, if not really thousands across Europe, but certainly dozens and hundreds of banks have to ensure those APIs work perfectly, as mentioned by Jack and Aaron. I think when sharing data, if for some reason the journey doesn't go quite right, assuming data wasn't lost, you know, you give it a try again on payments. There's a lot more sensitivity because there's money moving around and having a broken payments journey isn't pleasant at all for anyone. There's a concern of did it work? Did it not work? Is money, is money left my account? Um, so I think that's just going to take some time and maturity of the industry to catch up. But I'm, I'm, I'm really optimistic around the future for it. Uh, NatWest, you're asking some of the things we're working on. We have the pay it proposition out there, which is an open banking payments proposition. We're not the only ones, but we, we, we like what we're doing. Uh, our business customers like what we're doing. So we, we've been playing around with that and, and learning through that. And that, that's early, early days. That's grown a lot on the um, charitable side. 
So Captain Tom Foundation for us, but I know some of the other players in the industry have also focused on on charities because it's a great early use case and tends to attract some patience on behalf of customers if some of the journeys are a little little bit uh, have a little bit of friction in them. But um, no, we're I think we're happy with the way the open banking is moving, and I think it's just one of those cases of it's going to take time uh, to mature a bit. Yeah, Jack. Sorry, did you have a final point on that? Yeah, just just to say. Um... It's definitely the trend that payments are behind data, but that kind of obscures um, some of the niches that payment initiation has really gotten into. So um, Truelayer is definitely seeing, and, and, and we're building products around um, some niches like top-ups. So lots of people have got a main account, you know, with NatWest maybe, and a, an account that they just use in prep, um, you know, like like their Monzo card or their Revolut card. So topping up that account it was done by cards and that was really expensive but it can now be done by payment initiation a really good niche and likewise with wealth management transferring big like chunks of money it's really expensive for the wealth management companies to do that using card rails so payment initiation has filled that niche so there's lots of places where payment initiation is really coming into its own even though the general trend is behind data yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I keep an eye on, on obviously what's happening in the industry and this sort of trend, particularly in the wealth management space. Um, you know, even from a personal level, every time I go to move money into my, you know, into my account, I'm terrified I'm going to get that reference number wrong or I'm going to type the account number wrong. And it's, you know, it's not that much money. But to go back to the point that Dan was making about trust, I don't mind if I can't see my balance right now. I really mind if that 500 quid has gone to the wrong place or the wrong person or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so with that in mind, I'm just going to move us on to uh, maybe asking you some more, perhaps should we say personal questions um, and talk about like what you three have learned as you've gone through this and what your companies have learned. So, you know, I'll start, I'll start with the nice question, which is, I think Jack, you've kind of, you've covered a little bit there talking about particular successes in, in those two spaces. Um, are there any other successes that you really want to call out that you you three have found through your experiences and your companies have found related to open banking? I mean, if you climb Kilimanjaro last year, that's brilliant, but I, let's keep it to open banking for today. I think a, a major success for Truelayer has been actually uh, breaking into Europe and um, taking our experience in the UK where, thankfully, we have a really robust regulatory framework. We've got a double initiative of the CMA order and PSD2 to kind of really get things going. But we've managed to take those learnings to Europe and actually kick off uh, products and clients in like Ireland, France, Germany, Spain. I would say that Europe is like two years behind API maturity than the UK, but we're still having transactions initiated and accessing data um, and building a product. So that's been a real success and a struggle at the same time. We'll come. We'll come back to the struggles because you know you know that's going to follow. You know that question will come next. Um, Aaron, how about you? That's an interesting point because obviously Transferwise, you know, operates not just in the UK. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a particularly efficient business, I imagine. Um, but you know, it, 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 is that something that you found as well? Maybe that you've implemented things in the UK that you can take elsewhere, and it's made your life a bit easier, and you can you can get into those markets faster or get things on the ground faster. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting because the CMA nine work. Actually, at the start, was quite separate to PSD2, and um, the, like there was a bit of confusion, like probably as early as like 2016, 2017, about like okay, how all these things work together, uh, what's going to go in Europe, and 
in Europe, you've still got a bit of a fragmented mess because it's supposed to be a single market, but you've got you know four major open banking standards. So you've got Berlin Group, you've got Stet in France, a, a, a group in Poland, a group in Spain, and um, in Europe, Europe has like five thousand banks. So what we've been able to achieve in the UK with you know nine major banks is actually quite good because they all gathered behind a single standard and they all gathered behind a, a single implementation entity and the open banking implementation entity have done a really good job in in terms of you know being transparent and you know you can log onto their website and see like the average uptimes the number of api calls and that's that's super useful when you know for us as transferwise we say okay should we go and do the work to pick up these apis and build the integration into our system um, we can do that in the uk and we have done because it's it's nine banks the, the conversation in Europe is very, very different because there are 5,000 different banks. You've got, you know, the big banks, the BNP Paribas, Deutsche Banks, but you've also got the, the small local regional German banks. You've got um, local banks in France and the, the user journeys are all over the place as well. And that causes a lot of friction, a lot of hesitation. And if I'm being completely honest, we're still kind of scratching our heads to figure out how we do what we've done in the UK. Um, to replicate that in Europe as successfully and as conveniently as it should be for the customer. Yeah, I mean, I don't even want to think about what happens when you start looking at Italy because they, they've got about 5,000 banks on their own, I think, over there. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting banking market, the Italian one. All right, then, um, how about, you know, the nastier question. What are, what are some of the mistakes you've made or what have you, you learned and thought, oh, we perhaps shouldn't have done it that way or, you know, that didn't work um, or this took longer than we thought it was going to, actually, because we hadn't tried that before. I mean, uh, Jack, I'll, I'll come back to you because you alluded to some, so you must have had something in mind. Uh, well, there might have been an assumption that um, because PSD2 was such a, you know, was going so well in the UK that it would be a, a cakewalk to go into European countries where it's supposed to be harmonised. You know, the rules are supposed to be the same. Um, the the deadlines are all supposed to be the same. That we could just walk into France and connect, and it would be great. But you know, it's been so different to that. But then again, Trulayer's role is to go into that complex landscape and you know simplify and provide a single point of access for our clients. So it's pretty much our job to go in first and and help out. I think recently, though, there's been a really positive development with the. European Banking Authority publishing an opinion that basically brings the guidance into line with the UK. So it's a an opinion that says this, this, and this is an obstacle if you do this as a bank. And loads of different member state regulators have said that banks have until the 31st of December to fix this stuff or to the end of the year to fix this stuff. So that's been amazingly positive. Yeah, yeah, there's some action from, from the EBA. Um, Dan, how about you? I mean, I, I, I presume, you know, perhaps um, expanding into Spain is not something that you've struggled with just yet. Um, but, you know, what else is, what what, what has NatWest learned? Because obviously you have a slightly different perspective on this coming at it, you know, as one of the CMA9. Um, so your your experience will, will definitely have been slightly different. I think that's, I think that's right, Sarah. And I think that um, we have had a variety of experiences in this. Uh, some, as you said previously, you know, what have some of the learnings been? What's been going well? What's been challenged? I certainly think that uh, in the UK, a uh, handful of banks and, you know, one of our competition authorities had, and, and industry participants had, had the foresight to think, 
APIs only standards develop. And that doesn't make everything perfect, as both my friends can attest, because they connect to all the banks, as do we. We also connect to a variety of different banks. And uh, it doesn't make things perfect, but it, it gets you most of the way there. And I think that was a strong learning that, you know, some basic standards and banks collaborating together can can accelerate the outcomes massively. And as as, as both my uh, as friends here have, have talked about, the rest of Europe has been a, a more challenging story. And it's not for a lack of talent, per se. It's I think it's really we have the foresight here in the UK to just really get down to the nitty gritty of what does a customer experience need to look like? What's frictionless need to look like? What is uptime? What's availability? Um, these things need to be available 24 hours a day. I think we've also had some really good learnings amongst ourselves that this this API ecosystem we've developed, and it's been a vision long held by by many industries and certainly some banks. And we've long held out that externalizing services would be a great step forward for us. And this has given us the impetus to take that further. And it's not just us using, uh, not just third parties using these APIs. We use them ourselves uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, we have fintech partners that are using them. Uh, for, for, for non just account sharing journeys, for lending journeys and other things. And we have business customers lined up asking for access to APIs for their own accounts, which is kind of cool and clever because that's, that's what innovation is all about. Um, on the challenging side, again, I think that it, um, it, it's kind of just the mirror opposite. These are difficult technical things to get people's heads around. It is going to take some time for the public to understand what's safe and what's not safe in terms of sharing data and making payments, right? These aren't. Open banking isn't a household word, maybe for good or for bad. Hopefully, it won't be a word. It'll just be natural trust. But um, in the meantime, I think the public has to learn about it. And a variety of banks just need to catch up to where a handful of us are in terms of having reasonably solid uh, interfaces and journeys. So I think, again, it's just um, the EBA is certainly helping on the mainland with uh, taking many of our learnings and uh, carrying them forward. Maybe the only question is, did it have to take quite as long to provide that impetus to the continent? Oh, they do, I don't know. They like a siesta after lunch in Spain, and no, I don't know. I can't. I can't even do any racial stereotypes, which would be terrible. But, um, but no, but, I think. But Sarah, I, but Sarah back, I'm sorry. Back to your point. I mean, we've taken many of the learnings to other to other geographies as well. I mean, standing up Republic of Ireland, standing up Gibraltar, standing up uh, Lux, a place like Luxembourg, has been rather straightforward for us because it's been a, almost a you know a, a, a wash, rinse, and repeat. In that we've already built out ninety, you know, ninety nine percent of what needed to be there. So that's made our lives quite a bit easier. Yeah, and I think I think the sensible point about Europe and it taking a bit longer is just as as both Jack and Aaron have said, it's a lot more banks and a lot more people, and everything is a bit more tangled. And obviously, France and Spain do not have the same systems, nor does Italy, nor Germany, or you know, the, the entire block. So it, it is just more complicated. Um, Aaron, did you did you have a final point you wanted to make on that on, on, on things you've learned? Yeah, it's just I think wanted to follow up on what Dan said about the API availability. I think we're at a stage now where, like, according to the regulations and, and PSD two, the APIs are probably good enough, but actually, good enough isn't good enough when it comes to uh, some of these services. So you've got entire firms and businesses which have basically based their entire business model on these APIs being available more than ninety nine percent of the time. And especially when it comes to payments, uh, you know, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, they very, very rarely have downtime, right? So we're talking four nines plus. So if you're doing a million transactions a month, um, that 1% is actually quite a large number of customers that are falling through the journey. I, I can give you a good example. So, uh, you know, we've implemented all the banks. Some banks like Monzo have really, really good APIs and, you know, we're more than happy to kind of give them all the praise they deserve. But some of the 
other larger banks and I won't name names, but their APIs have been down for like a whole weekend or some, some a whole week. Um, and if you're a consumer and you're saying, okay, let me give this payment initiation request a try, or let me give this new account management app a try, and you log on and you try to import the details from your bank and it doesn't work, that business is completely dead. They're not going to go back. They're not going to give that payment another try because they can use a MasterCard or they can use a Visa. Why would they then take a chance on an experience that doesn't work? So yes, we're at a stage where you know, 99% of the time these APIs are up and running, but I really hope we don't settle for that and we continue to push to get that extra 1% because yes, that'll be hard and it potentially could be quite expensive, but it's super important for the success of open banking in the UK. All right, well, we're going to get on to those next steps in just a minute. But first, um, we're going to take a quick pause um, and hear from our sponsors. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility, while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. Do you follow 11FS on LinkedIn? If you don't, you should. We make video content over there that you don't want to miss out on. And we're starting not one, but two new live shows. On Tuesdays, we dive into the biggest industry news stories. And on Thursdays, we grill experts in financial services on what they do for a living. You'll have the chance to ask your questions and get them answered live on the show by some of the best minds in the industry. Find out more by heading over to our 11FS LinkedIn page. The banking business model is broken. The question is, how can we rebuild it? Embedded finance presents a massive opportunity for banks to play a new role in the financial services ecosystem, offering more revenue streams, lower costs, and higher margins. Our new report, Better Banking Business Models, Embedded Finance and the Path to Growth, is a must-read for banks considering the smartest next step. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service to download the report for free. Okay, on with the show. Okay, so to go back to where we left off, Aaron, um, what does the future look like for open banking? Um, maybe let's try and keep it tangible. Um, I know we aren't, you know, haven't got our crystal balls out yet. Um, but let's, I think there's, there's, two, there's two questions here. One is, what do you want it to look like? And what is actually going to happen over sort of the next 12 months or so practically? Um, so I don't, I don't, Aaron, do you want to go first? Because I, I, I mentioned you there, called you out. Yeah, sure. So when I look at kind of the next 12 months and potentially a little bit longer, I see uh, two main things. I think one, I, I naturally hope the APIs will become you know, fully resilient and hit that 4.9 level of availability. And I think that's something that kind of needs to happen rather than I want it to happen. Then where, like from a transferwise perspective, uh, one thing we're really keen on seeing is um, information on the fees and FX rates as part of open banking. Um, so currently, when you pull information from one of the CMA9, the, the information on the FX rates applied and the cross-border payments fees are 
quite limited and they're, they're not mandatory. Um, and we'd love to see that happen because um, the more transparency you get, especially in a market such as cross-border payments, where fees and delivery times are super confusing and uh, super hidden, uh, it would really improve transparency. And I think the more customers know about what they're being charged, the more informed decisions they can make about things like, well, if I'm sending money abroad, should I use my bank? Should I use another provider? Or does this other provider offer it cheaper? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's the, the point that you're picking up on there is that um, already it's mandated that some data be made available, but but um, FX visa and cross-border transfers are not one of them yet. Um, Dan, Jack, how are your crystal balls looking? What's coming next and what would you like to see? Well, for me, there's a, a bunch of consultations, which means that regulators and uh, legislators are, are trying to work out what's next. So the, the Treasury has its payments landscape review um, the Commission has its big retail payment strategy. All of this screams PSD3 and, you know, big legislation. So that's definitely coming down the tracks. But I think practically when it comes to businesses on the ground, the niches that I mentioned, I think they're going to get a foothold so that where card payments are expensive for a provider of like wealth investment platforms or ICES or other things, they'll just switch to open banking because it makes sense to do so. They can save so much money. There's a bunch of initiatives that are trying to catalyze more retail use of payment initiation. So things that you can't do under the current regulatory framework, like you can't initiate variable recurring payments um, using open banking at the moment. So it's not, you can't make payments that are equivalent to direct debit or, you know, Netflix subscriptions uh, using a card. And that's being addressed. So we'll see if payment initiation can take a foothold there as well. But yeah, I think the stuff that's on the ground, which I just mentioned, and then there's a whole raft of regulation where people are thinking, how do we plug the gaps in PSD2? We've got current accounts and credit cards open. When are we going to get savings accounts, investment accounts, pensions, mortgages? So you're very much, we're very much in open finance season rather than open banking. That um that point about direct debits is so important as well because when I first realised that I thought oh well <laughs> an awful lot of the payments that are going out of my banking account that that's where I really like to not have to think about it thank you very much is those where you know your gas bill is different every month for usage or whatever so I think that's that's a key one um D- Dan how about you what what's your vision for the future well so there's a few different things I think as Aaron and Jack had pointed out there's probably some questions about you know how does all of it work how do we um are, is the payments functionality sufficient. I think we're probably probably at some odds there, to be honest with you, because there's probably the one question around could we could we further enhance it to to ensure that customers don't have to recognize the payments going out. On the other hand, we, we talk about financial health. In some cases, we probably want to get the public and, and encourage the public to get closer to their finances to recognize are they paying too much for something. So I think there's there's certainly some play in there, and there's 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 a good conversation about what more we can do, and we, we collaborate with. Uh, with with all these guys on the on the concepts as well around some of the regulatory forms, so more to come there. I think absolutely right when we think about open banking, uh, we think about that as a bit of an iceberg from a data perspective. We can payments aside for a moment, and we um we think what's uh, what's under the water on that is clearly open finance and natural extension. Some of that may be really exciting, like pensions. We've talked about that previously. In that um, you know a lot of people aren't, aren't particularly knowledgeable at their pensions. They tend to be complex products and wouldn't it be great to leverage the power of technology 
uh, for things like the pensions industry. So we think there's, there's potentially some huge wins there. And we know that the FCA and, and Treasury have set, sent out consultations on that. So I think that'd be exciting. But even further on, we talk about open data, which is I as a, you know, I as a, as a consumer, I as a member of the public have control of all my data. I know where it sits, who I've consented to use it for what purpose. And I feel like I can control it. And I think we're just barely scratching the surface on an entire lifestyle around managing data. So I think there's a lot of really exciting things to come both within finance and in, in just in the digital world altogether. I'd even probably throw things like digital ID in there. I think that's an exciting use case, um, which isn't just sharing data. There's also questions around, you know, KYC processes and, and proof of who you are and who's guaranteeing the liability on that. But this, this has the ability to go lots of great places to help people. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think uh, the, the the point about um, you know open finance and open data is really interesting based on the conversation we had earlier about taking learnings from open banking to Europe. Actually, there are parts of the world which have already started on their journey towards open finance and open data. Australia is the one that springs to mind. Um, I I know there are others, but I can't, I can't recall them right now. But Australia's consumer data right is that they kind of looked at what was happening in uh, in Europe and went, yeah, we can do that, but better. Um, I actually was working with, uh, well, wasn't working. And was moderating a roundtable for Emerging Payments Asia recently, and some of the uh, interesting use cases and suggestions that have come out of some of their conversations on on that side of the world as well were really fascinating. Um, so, you know, what is there anything that you've seen elsewhere that you think would be good to bring? To the UK next. So, you know, are we ready for open finance? Probably not just yet. We've got lots of ideas. Um, I know that, you know, you're, you're, you're based in lots of different places. Is, is there anything that you think can help us, I guess, get ready for open finance faster? Is there anything that you think that can help us get there faster that you've seen other people do? Or just that you think would work? <laughs> Sorry, Jack. We're active in Australia, and I think it's really important um, to look at what they did with their legislation in terms of having not just like a narrow scope, but having different sectors like pensions, mortgages in there. Um, and they've sequenced it as well. Sequencing is really important. When the FCA does respond to its big open finance consultation, it should really focus on sequencing because we, we saw from PSD2 that it was a hugely ambitious, like everything was changing it all at the same time. And, and that that led to a lot of uncertainty and a lot of delay and a lot of struggle, pain, blood, sweat, and tears. So when when open finance is being mandated in different ways, they should think about like realistic sequencing. Um, what's the most important sector to open up next? And I think there's obvious gaps in PSD2 that need to be first, like savings and investments before you get on to um, insurance and other, other more obscure sectors for, for data. Um, so I would say sequencing is really important. I'm just thinking, just laughing at the insurance industry being called obscure. <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> what you meant, but my other podcast is InsureTech Insider, and I, I suspect I'll get some flack on Twitter for that. Um, Dan, sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> no, I did, no, 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 not at all. Um, I think it's, it, it's interesting because as you say, in Australia, we've, we've come up with a, you know, a consumer data rights, which is in some ways similar to GDPR, global data protection in Europe. So you kind of start at the macro level of what are the rights of people with their data. In the case of open banking, we've actually gone in and said, all right, let's learn by doing. So I think two very valid ways, one of which is experiment in a, in a, in a, in a regulated environment, as well as some overlying um, kind of themes around 
who owns their data, what's the rights of people to use it. So I think it's interesting. I've, I've heard a fair bit about people saying PSD2 didn't go far enough. I suppose part of it also comes down to, uh, to what the regulator has within some of their control. And payments services directive, it says payments at the very top of it, had a, has a certain um, uh, mandate, if you will, a, a, a certain capture zone. And I think that as we go further, I actually think here in the UK, we're probably being more forward thinking. I don't want to say aggressive, but more forward thinking than a lot of parts, other jurisdictions where there's a lot of discussion on consumer data rights, but actually putting the pipes and plumbing in to bring it to life may take them uh, half a decade, a decade, hard to say, particularly the pandemic in flight. Um, we're here. We probably can do something more tangibly. The only, the only hesitance I have is that some industries probably aren't as ready. I look at pensions again, and there's a fair amount of the pensions industry, which isn't even fully digitalized. And the whole premise of things like open banking and PSD2 is to ensure that what customers can do digitally with their provider, others can also do. In some cases, there's not a, there's not a deep digital capability there. So those industries, by, by, by introducing openness, will certainly change forever in terms of the size and scale. For providers to succeed, so it's it's really interesting what that might mean going forward. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's a the future's bright as it were. I mean before we wrap up, Aaron, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you have a, a final comment on that. Either you know you know some of these ideas that, that Dan and Jack have mentioned about what what needs to happen next, what could happen next. Um, uh, you know what 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 are your thoughts on that? Um, so I think Jack and Dan have both kind of articulated very well the next steps, but I think one thing is is important not to kind of underestimate how important it is we get this step right before we move on to the next steps. And, you know, the whole concept of open banking is, you know, is underpinned by trust. And um, we've seen 2 million users, but actually in the grand scheme of the UK, that's actually quite a small amount. So there's still a lot of work we need to do on the trust side of things, getting consumers comfortable with the concept of data sharing between authorized parties. And if we can do that and nail that, that sets a really strong foundation for them just adding other services on top of a framework that works really well in the UK. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's let's get the, let's get the basics done right, and then we can then we can start building. All right. Well, um, on that note, um, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you um, and your companies, Aaron? Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So, um, tra- well, Transferwise, I hope, is fairly easy to find. Go on transferwise.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search for my name. Perfect. Jack, how about you? Uh, we've got a really active blog on Medium, Trulayer at Medium. So um, you can find blogs that I've done about uh, this kind of thing and blogs about how the company's doing. You know, it's all there. Perfect. And Dan, how about you? Yeah, we're we're a bit large, so it's pretty easy to find Nat West and our brands. But uh, in terms of all things open banking, bankofapis.com is our portal. Uh, providing all the information about the ecosystem, access to APIs, sandboxes, and the rest. So bankofapis.com is the place to look. Perfect. Thank you. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, do subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider, or you can email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.